sport administrators, sport fans and participants themselves. Sarah and Ash sit down with a bunch of inspiring female leaders from within the sports industry who share their journey of achieving their aspirations. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming Sonia Thompson to the podcast. Sonia is the current Leadership and Culture Manager at the Australian Institute of Sport and is responsible for building capability within the high-performance sports system by supporting the development of individual and collective leadership and holistic high-performance cultures. Prior to joining the AIS, Sonia was Head of Women's Cricket for Cricket Victoria and held senior roles with Cricket Australia, one of those being Women's Big Bash League Manager. With a career spanning over 20 years within the sporting industry, we are very excited to have Sonia join us today. So welcome to the podcast, Sonia. Hello, and thank you very much for having me. For joining us, as always, joined by Sarah as well. It's a very impressive rap sheet, Sonia. Thanks. I love the 20 years. It makes me feel very old. I think it might even be longer, but that's okay. (laughs) It's easy to rack up 20 years in sport. We all start volunteering really, really young. Thank you, Ash making me feel better but yep. So we always like to start with the same question which is can you tell us what was your earliest memory of sport for you? I've got lots of memories of sport from I think from when memories are first formed. So I remember definitely playing sport when I was younger maybe about six I started playing t-ball and me and my friend one of my best friends were in a group full of boys and we were the only two girls and we played t-ball and I've been playing softball ever since really so that was I guess a a really great introduction for me I loved it and then at that same age I also did gymnastics which I was not very good at and I just remember trying really really hard to do like a forward walkover but just having absolutely no flexibility so I but I just remember just trying non-stop every afternoon so yeah right from an early age I was playing sport but I my grandmother loved cricket And she always had cricket going on on the radio and was always going to the test matches. Also, not just playing, but being a fan or a spectator was also part of growing up. I remember that very clearly. So tell us about your current role at the AIS. So I've been at the AIS for about two years now. And my role is as the leadership and culture manager. And really, that's working across all of the kind of high performance NSOs and also the National Institute Network. And it's really trying to build real leadership capability within those role holders. So we do a lot of skill um, and knowledge kind of development. And we also do lots of development that's more around those leadership capabilities where you're trying to shift the mindset and behaviours of leaders. So there's that part of the work. We've also just really started to work more into the team dynamic space. So how we really understand what's happening within a team and build better team cohesion, which will obviously then lead to better team performance. So it's another kind of exciting area that we're really starting to to work into and really working with intact teams kind of within their environments. The other part of our team does a lot of real cultural development, but really from a cultural diagnostic perspective. So trying to understand like what's happening from a well-being and cultural perspective within a sport. So we get feedback from the players or the athletes, from the support staff, from the leaders, from the coaches, and just really understand, you know, what's what's happening and how might it be improved moving forward. So they're the key kind of areas that, that um, the team works on. You obviously work with a range of sports in your role. Then, how do you find that challenge working with so many different sporting organisations? 
I love well, I love sports, so I love finding out about all new sports. So that's always really interesting to kind of understand talking to the different ones and and finding out how they select or what their what are their pressure points for them. And but when it really boils down to it, there are a lot of similarities as well in terms of what are the things that they need to to really work on and what what are the challenges that they they are having. There's a lot of consistency, and I guess our team works a lot with the people part of it. And so people are people, regardless of where they are, they always kind of throw up the same interesting challenges. So there is a lot of consistency. And the, the beauty of working across sports is that you can really, I mean, the thing that really excited me about working for the AIS is you can really start to see if you can shift a system or a way collectively sport looks at things. So to me, that's really exciting. Do you find that in your role, you're able to kind of bring the NSOs and the sports together to work on things collectively rather than each having to have different programs or initiatives specific to their sport? Because as you said, leadership, you know, they're all people, very similar. Uh, They've got similarities as well as differences. But I always find the more that we can do collective, the more impact it'll have. Yeah, totally. So there's a lot of, I mean, in in our specific team, there's a lot of work that we do that's cross-sport. So we'll bring individual kind of role holders from different sports together and they can learn a lot from each other, both having similar challenges or potentially some of the leaders having challenges that they've faced before that a leader now is facing so that they can kind of have navigated it before and they can share you know, those lessons that they have learnt and, and also create those networks of support, which I think in, in sport is really important. So when you can find yourself in a bit of trouble or navigating a tricky situation and you we've built, help create those kind of strong networks, how can you reach out to those people and utilise them for support during that time? So that is definitely part of, of our role as well as help to create those strong kind of relationships across the system. You're also responsible for the development of the Women's Big Bash League, including everything for the vision, planning that right through to the product, the metrics, everything that goes with that. Can you tell us what it was like working on such a huge project specifically for women's sport and how it becomes so successful? Yeah, that was, I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago now, but it probably wasn't that long ago. It was a big project to work on and I feel really privileged to have been able to do it. Learned a lot from doing that particular project. And we had this amazing group of people who were working on that um, at Cricket Australia. So there was a lot of people who uh, had put in the hard yards and trying to promote women's cricket for a long time. And so it really felt like a real opportunity to take women's cricket to the next level. So I guess there was a kind of a bit of a heavy weight of understanding what that responsibility was and really wanting to make it successful. And with that project, some of the, the key things for me was the navigating of the stakeholders was really tricky because we obviously had the state associations, we had the Big Bash League franchises, which were part of the state associations, but also somewhat separate. And each stakeholder had a different kind of perspective of really what the Women's Big Bash League should and could look like. So really understanding that, really being able to get everyone aligned on a vision of, you know, why this was important and what it could achieve took quite a lot of effort to get that messaging really right and to get everyone on board. So for me, there was some expectations that it would do pretty well. I mean, we were talking about broadcast numbers of around 40K would, was, was what we were looking for. And, and when we were able to show that the that people were ready for it and really excited by it, and we had hundreds of thousands of people watching it rather than just tens of thousands, it was really satisfying to be involved with. But I think it for me, it's really important to kind of also understand that 
it didn't start from scratch. With the Women's Big Bash League, there'd been significant amount of work that had been done in setting up. There was obviously the WNCL for a number of years beforehand and there was women's T20 cricket. And a lot of work had been done in terms of really making sure that the standards that were offered to the women were, you know, were really what was required to let them perform at a high performance level. So there was a lot of kind of minimum standards in terms of what grounds they played at, what staff they had access to, what resources they had access to. So it was really building for years and years before WBBL was launched. So I think that compared to some of the other professional sports, it just had a little bit more kind of lead in into that competition. And and I think that really set it up for success. We had Shiloh Curtis on the podcast a few weeks ago and she was speaking about that messaging part as well and how important it was to get the right messages out there to the right people at the right time and, you know, how many players themselves become um, a bit of a the mouthpiece as well and making sure they had the right information so it seems to be a consistent message how do you feel now when you sit back and look at the women's big bash and women's cricket in general and we'll get into some of the stuff you did at cricket australia but it must make you very proud when you see the state of women's cricket in australia now Oh, no, it's wonderful. I mean, I've got two young kids and one boy, one girl, and they both love cricket and they both see it as a sport for them. And for me, when I was growing up, that wasn't something that was really available. Like some people played cricket, but not many women played cricket. So I think it's a legitimate sport now. And I think being able to see it on the TV and the, the role models that we have are absolutely amazing. Like those, some of those players, Elise Perry, Meg Lanning, I mean, you could you could roll off so many. And they're the type of, of role models that you want both. My daughter daughter and my son to kind of aspire to be. So the fact that they're getting exposure and they're they're as role models and as talented athletes makes me really excited to have been a part of it and really happy that it was a success. And, you know, not everyone thought it would be. And so the fact that we launched it pretty well and then it just has grown from strength to strength has, has been really pleasing. As Ash mentioned, we did have Charlotte on. She mentioned that half of the battle sometimes was convincing the internal stakeholders that this was going to be a success. She knew deep down from grassroots that there was need for it from a national scale. Did you find the same thing when you were launching the, the Women's Big Bash or with the success of women's cricket already within the National League? Was it not as hard? No, there was definitely some internal kind of questions. There was a significant financial investment that needed to be made. So that's a shift in where the the money had been spent and you weren't going to see the returns from a financial perspective straight away. So there was always, if you're that way inclined, to really kind of question the direction. And also because the Big Bash League, in terms of those franchise teams, were relatively new in terms of their present people understanding what they were about. So some internal people were worried that it would detract from the BBL and that there was kind of some some question marks around whether it was mature enough to add the women's the women's league to it as well. And the benefit that I think from a cricket perspective is that we were able to have every single BBL team also have a women's team right from the start. And there were big questions around that, whether we had the depth of talent, whether it would be better to start off smaller and then increase. But I think that was a really good decision because we have seen the talent, you know, give give people the right platform, give them the right resources, let them train and actually spend some time honing their craft. We've seen the quality of the play increase significantly as well. So yeah, there was definitely some convincing different members of the board or different members of senior management. Some people were right on board from the start and other people you just had to find really what was going to resonate with them. 
and make sure that you were able to sell the story to multiple stakeholders in different ways. It's really interesting you say that because Shiloh had that exact same tip for people is finding out what's in it for them and being able to talk to them and to that point. So I think it's a really good skill not only just for, you know, starting a national sport league for women, as you two have done, but whenever it is, you know, you might be presenting to the board on something, you might need to get some budget approval for something and showing the benefit it'll have for their own needs as as well as your own. Totally. I would totally agree with that. Selling the story as well. So really making sure they've got the data behind it, but you're also thinking about crafting a story and how you utilise the athletes or the participant to really help people kind of imagine that's really setting that vision of what it could be like in the future. And yes, you might have to inject, you know, additional finances now, but the payday will be when you can get significantly more participants and fans and broadcasters. Being able to to craft that story, I think, is, is really important. Another big thing that you did while you were at cricket was you were responsible for establishing the first women's payments and contracts with the Australian Cricket Association. And I remember actually reading this in the media. Obviously, we're working in sports, so thinking this was a huge deal and that you had, you know, it was a massive achievement. Can you take us through what that was like? When I first started working for cricket, I had just come from working at Sport England, of which cricket was one of the sports that I worked with and the ECB were already paying their players, their women's team. So it was really, again, like crafting that story of getting the initial payments. And those initial payments were not big. They were 5, 10 and 15K, depending on where you kind of sat within that Australian team. That was the first step. First of all, let's establish that we're going to, we want to pay them. And that initial story took a little bit of tweaking or convincing, but really thinking about how we're going to compete on an international stage if our major competitor is already significantly advanced in, in how they're viewing their women's players and how they're supporting them. And then comparing it to what some of the other women's payments were in, in other other sports, both in Australia and internationally, was really how we got the first initial payments. And then there was a big jump. So then they became members of the Creators Association. And then there was that negotiation phase of really how to take them to the next level. There's been subsequent jumps since then, which is really pleasing. So that journey from paying for themselves to getting some injection of not having to pay for themselves to then getting some money. I mean, it's been it's been a pretty long road, but now, pleasingly, the best players can be professional players and they can earn a living. Could they be earning more? Yes, they could be. <laughs> and I think we all agree with that. And it's just a, a matter of, you know, continuing t- to advocate to ensure that they're, they're getting really what they deserve. And I think what the different sports leagues, I guess what the positive's been is that most, well, not most, but a lot of the women's athletes seem to be good at multiple sports. So not only does the pay make a difference, but the conditions that now, you know, it's a lot of the AFLW girls might have come across from playing a different sport, like whether it's basketball, cricket. And so you want to be the most attractive sport for the the best athletes coming through, regardless of what their background is. Yeah, totally. And I think that's more than just payments, right? Payments Correct. are yeah. part of it, but it's really around what, like how seriously the sport takes women's sport and I think also how the resources that they put around it do they get access to really good coaching do they get access to good support staff you know are there are there full-time programs that are associated with what they're trying to do because if I'm an athlete I want to have the best chance of performing at my best and and in order to have that it's not just about the 
the pay, it's also about, you know, what's wrapped around that so that I can actually excel. Do you have a lot of conversations about that at the time? Like, you know, Elise Perry is the obvious one in terms of her dual sport, but Ash Barty played Big Bash for a little while. Do you have conversations around we want them to come play cricket full time or given sort of some of the restrictions I guess we have around resourcing, we're actually comfortable for them to go out and play other sports at different times during the year as well? Oh, look, early days, there was definitely a lot of conversations. And look, we were really flexible because we weren't able to offer them a full-time wage, right? So had to be reasonable about not restricting their ability to earn income or in other sectors sections or other sports I think that's becoming less and less relevant now because they are the point that you can offer them a a professional place then that's a different conversation then they can't really start to to juggle things because I don't think by playing two at this elite level you are really going to be able to become the best athlete you could in either sport that's just my opinion I wouldn't push somebody though until you were really able to offer them something substantial so if if we're talking about pathway athletes, let them play as many sports as they can navigate. Just coming back to your current role, obviously you get exposed to so many different national sports organisations. How are you finding, I guess, the amount of females who are in leadership roles at those organisations? Is it already good enough? Is it shifting or does it still have a long way to go? What's your take on it? I think it's got a long way to go. So if you look at the numbers for you know people holding CEO positions, and performance director positions, which is really the high performance executive level positions, they're not. There's not many. The number of kind of head coaches we have is really low as well. So it definitely needs to shift. And I don't think. <clears throat> I mean, in the past we've done a lot of work in terms of programs, which are important. I mean, we're, we've just launched two new programs in terms of trying to get more women to have leadership within STEM and sport, and also supporting women as they transition out of an athlete career into a career in sport. But it's more than just supporting the individual, it's shifting the system because I think it's still really tricky to navigate some of the complexities that they face, some of the biases, some of the – there's some trickiness that's still definitely within the system that I think it makes it, you know, harder for some women in in those leadership positions um, even once they get the roles. We've seen a number of women – who have, you know, been able to achieve the leadership roles but haven't maybe sustained them as long as they would have wanted to. So I think more work definitely needs to be done. I don't know what the answers are. I think it's really complicated and complex. But the more that we can see it as a systemic issue, not just as an individual issue, I think the better off we'll be at trying to shift it. Yeah, that's it's a really interesting take, especially, you know, a few of the female CEOs have just recently resigned. There's also, I guess, that push to have more representation on boards from a female um, perspective. Do you think that might help with that systemic shift that you were speaking about? Yeah, I think the research suggests that if you get a better balance at, at board level or senior executive level, you do start to see the shifts. So, yeah, I would definitely advocate for, you know, as much diversity and, and um, gender balance as we possibly could. And by diversity, I don't just mean gender diversity. I mean diversity in any facets that we can look at, backgrounds and education and perspectives so that we are, you know, looking at things in different ways. I think that that just aids in in the leadership. What do you find some of the more rewarding parts of working in sport are? Oh, the rewarding. I think, (laughs) I mean, I've always loved sport 
and I think it's the people that work in sport are really passionate. And so working with passionate people has always been rewarding. I think there's usually quite a variety of things that you get exposed to. Like it's, you're not just sitting at a desk all day. There's lots of different problems and challenges and, and being able to, to navigate those. I get I can get bored easily. So that's always been some of the things that have attracted me to working in sport. So yeah, and also because I guess sport can have a big impact in the community, right? Like it brings people together, both as on teams, whatever those teams look like, and also with people who are playing sport in the community or watching sport in the community. So I think it can have this really nice impact, which I think is something that's always attracted to me working in there as well. Yeah, great. So within your current role at the moment, obviously you've mentioned a couple of times that you have learning courses and development workshops for the sports. What do you do yourself to continue to learn and and develop for your own personal development? I love learning. (laughs) So um, (laughs) sounds a bit naff, doesn't it? But um, (laughs) I love to learn. I do like a bit of a podcast nut. I listen to a lot of podcasts, all different ones. Uh, this one is on your list. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure, <laughs> oh, sure. Checking, just checking. <laughs> but, yeah, I've, I listen to podcasts, you know, probably about one a day. And so that's all really, really interesting. And I have done a lot of formal learning as well. So I like formal and informal. So Early in my career or mid-career, I did an MBA because I thought that was really important. I've done other leadership development, both trying to get up my accreditations in leadership development. So, yeah, a bit of a mix of, of formal and informal and love a rabbit hole of a podcast as well. In 10 years from now, where would you like to see women's sport as part of our society? I, t- I think there's still a long way to go in terms of where where we'd like to see it. I would like to see, you know, to your question before, a lot more females and women in leadership roles, both at board level, at senior level, at CEO and senior executive level. So, you know, it would be wonderful to have the same opportunity if you're a talented woman as if you're a talented man to get those CEO positions. And hopefully, if we keep on working and, and, and shifting the system, we will get there. Love to see more media coverage. I just think it's totally underrepresented at the moment. You look at the back pages of the paper, there's nowhere near enough uh, women's content, not enough broadcast content. So I would just like to see all to be increased across the board in terms of how we are able to view and consume it and how we understand. Yeah. And speaking of, I guess, the future, what about your future? So where to next? What does the future hold for you? Well, I would love to say that I had a plan, but there is <laughs> there is no plan. I, there's never really been a plan. I've always, which probably is not what advice that everyone would give, but I always say like follow your curiosity. So f- for me, find the things that you find interesting and passionate and, and then keep on doing them until you find something else that's more curious or more interesting to find. So following your interests. For me, also working with really good people is really important. So people who I think have good integrity and good values. That will, that will always be part of my decision-making and finding roles where I can have a positive impact will always be part of kind of my decision-making about what's next. I'm really enjoying the current role. It's quite challenging. So I'm happy here for now. I think that's great. I think there's people feel a lot of pressure for always having to have a plan. So you never know what's around the corner. So following your curiosity is a, a really good tip for me, I think. 
Yeah, and I think being really clear about what your values are. Mm. And so by being clear about what your values are, you can then make sure that whatever choices that you're making align with those values. Because I think that's where you get yourself in trouble. If you go for the extra pay or you go for the, you know, what you think you should be doing instead of what you're really passionate about or, you know, there is a, tends to be a values misalignment and that's when it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't always work out. I think it's been a really common theme with nearly everyone we've spoken to around don't yeah, make a plan around necessarily a role that you, you know, you must get to or things like that. It's been around, you know, what are your values? What do you enjoy doing and work it out from there, which I think is um, a really nice way to do it. And I'm sure means that everyone would have a much more enjoyable career as well if they sit down and maybe take the time to, to go through that themselves. Yeah, definitely. And it's a bit of an interesting question because I think your legacy, particularly in women's cricket, is obviously already there and on show for us. But what would you like your legacy to be? Look, I think a legacy is always, yes, that, that is a wonderful being involved with that was, was a great legacy within cricket. But I am quite interested in leaving a legacy in terms of how you make people feel. And I would like to have left a legacy where people that I've worked with have definitely kind of felt heard and supported and appreciated. So that for me is a, a big legacy piece. The other part, the reason I've kind of shifted into the leadership development space is because I think that by supporting people to become kind of better humans, <laughs> which is really what the leadership work does, kind of better versions of themselves, that has a massive ripple effect. So if you think about all the people that they lead or they interact with, so their families, their communities, their staff, their colleagues, if that can kind of ripple out, that's a legacy, I think. that's a, It's a way of looking at it. So I think that for me, continue to build leadership and support leaders to have impacts themselves is a, is a big legacy for me. Yeah, I think that's a lovely legacy to leave. I'm sure everyone's already got a lot out of our chat today. It's been awesome speaking to you, but I did just have one last question for you. And I, I know that you studied sports management at uni. So yeah, I guess there's a, a few of us that have been in the, in a similar boat. So what do you think would be the top three tips you would give to perhaps someone that's just finished their course, maybe a female sports administrator starting her journey to try and aim and work in sport? Okay, top tips. I love this question. <laughs> top tips. Sonia's top tips. I think in my career, asking for opportunities. So for me, there's been a number of occasions where I've asked to do things that maybe I wasn't quite ready for and, you know, had the confidence to actually ask for it. For example, the WBBL, that was something that I said, you know, I was on a project team, it hadn't quite got legs and I said, I want to I want to lead it. Let me do that. So asking for the opportunities, I think, is really important because if you sit back and wait for them, they won't always come. What other top tips do I have? One that's probably taken me a little bit of time to understand in more depth was um, do what you actually think is right, not what you think people expect you to do. So early in my career, I kind of fell into the trap of, oh, this is what a sports administrator, this is what a leader looks like. And it was more that traditional kind of thought of what a leader was, more autocratic. But then at the time that I started to really understand, well, what are my strengths and how do I play to those strengths, which would be top tip number three, understand what your strengths are and play to them. That's when things really started to kind of shift for me in terms of 
how I perceive myself and, and other opportunities. So for me, do what you think. Don't fall into the trap of thinking you need it to fit in a certain way. Make sure that you do what you think is right. If you've got an idea that other people don't have, put it out there. Don't just kind of toe the party line all the time. Yeah, I think that's really good advice as always. We thank you so much for your time today, Sonia. You've um, already had an amazing career, but no doubt um, some big things to come for you. So we look forward to following it. And thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sonia. Ash and Sarah. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sports Intuition Podcast. If you did, we would greatly appreciate you taking the time to leave us a rating and any reviews. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode.